We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Particularly in our society, uh, we as black men have a certain role, a certain place in the consciousness of America. And so you have to make sure that you are ready for whatever those situations uh, that may present themselves. And it might mean that you may be hypervigilant and all the rest of these things. And so one of the things that MDMA, heroin, all of these things help me to do is to recalibrate and help me to understand that you have to be human. Regardless of all the shit that they might put on you, you have to be human. And you have to take every situation anew. You, uh, just because somebody looks like or what you consider a Trump supporter doesn't mean that that's who they are or that that's, doesn't mean that's the whole of their personality. So you have to take them anew. And my drug use helps me to remember that, to help, it helps me to engage each situation and people, each person anew. And because precisely that, I wanna be in that space where you said with Molly, uh, and where you are empathetic and you're caring and you're sappy, whatever they call it, but you are a better human as a result. And that's where I wanna be. Dr. Carl Hart is a major drug researcher who occasionally does heroin because there's absolutely nothing wrong with thoughtful usage of anything. If I said he sometimes uses whiskey, you'd be like, what's the big deal? If I said he sometimes smokes a joint, you'd be like, okay, well, what's wrong with thoughtful usage of heroin every once in a while? He gets into his thoughts on using drugs responsibly, even quote-unquote hard drugs. There's no real difference between what we think of as hard drugs and what we think of as, what would you call it, soft drugs. We talk about the war on drugs. We talk about the impact that drugs have on you and the way that the criminalization and stigmatization of drugs has had a massive negative effect on our experiences in life. It would actually be really valuable for some of us to take that trip that you can only get to that place where you're on LSD, where you're on ayahuasca, where you're on heroin, and see what you're like there. If it sounds crazy, you gotta listen to the doctor. For half of this interview, stay right here. For the whole interview, which is highly highly interesting and informative patreon.com 
slash Torrey show. Patreon.com slash Torrey show. It's just $5 a month. You get our Friday Patreon exclusives. You get the entirety of our Wednesday interviews and you help support our growing team. Let's get into it. It's Dr. Carl Hart, the author of Drug Use for Grownups, talking about how grownups can use drugs in a grown-up way. It's Dr. Carl Hart on Tour A Show. Do you do heroin, like, all the time? <laughs> That's like asking, uh, does somebody do, do alcohol all the time? Uh, no, um, it doesn't work like that. Just think about sex. Do you have sex all the time? Um, no, you, you, when well, you that's set the goal, aside but... time for it. Yeah, I know, I know, but we got to work. Like you and I are sitting here working now. We got stuff to do. Um, and also with heroin, we have this additional uh, sort of restriction in that it's illegal. And then if you want to be healthy and that sort of thing, you got to make sure that you got good stuff. And like me, I like to make sure that I get my stuff from the source. So I'm typically in Europe or something like that if I get heroin. Uh, and I, I don't buy it and I can't do that sort of thing. I don't want to get caught out there like that. So there's all kinds of planning and all this sort of thing that goes into it, man. And that um, we can think about a pandemic. It's just not conducive for uh, that kind of lifestyle for me uh, because I can't get what I like. But you use it as regularly as you can. Yeah, um, just like um, alcohol or anything like that. For example, if I had a choice and if I had like Afghanistan heroin and alcohol available to me the night, it wouldn't even be a choice or whatever night it might be. Uh, whether it's uh, Tuesday night or Saturday night, um, heroin is a far better choice for me because um, uh, there are no hangover effects. Uh, and also, um, I like the place where I get. And that place is like a place of uh, forgiving, uh, more uh, able to hear, understand. And, uh, I can be more understanding. In general, more magnanimous. I can... Uh, uh, before forgiving, uh, forgiving of people and empathetic and, um, and, and it, it helps. It's nice for me to reevaluate, uh, the impact of my behavior on other people, on the environment, on the society. And heroin helps me to like be in a space where I can do that. With, with a lot of people, especially me knows what the inside of marijuana feels like and some other things my only i never i never did heroin i just think about diana ross you know what was it lady sings the blues when you know it goes in and she just slumps like yes this is heaven you know and um and train spotting where they like slump like yes it's heaven the body gets like all limp and loose so what is the internal feeling that you get when when it when it gets into you yeah, so like to be clear, most of those movies uh they get it wrong. Like okay. in the book, I, I talk about train spotting and that bullshit that they have perpetuated. Um <laughs> and when they get it wrong, there's a price that we pay in society. Uh that price is that we overregulate and we are overly punitive yes. because of the way they get it wrong. We have this image of the heroin user as someone in the grips 
of this drug's addiction. And it's so powerful that we as a society has to help them. When in fact, society should be helping people with health care, uh, making sure people have jobs, all that sort of thing protects against folks uh, getting in trouble with drugs. So that's number one, they get it wrong. And this sort of slump, that means that you probably hit the dose too high. That's like an overdose. That's not the best place to be. If you uh, use heroin, and particularly when it's illegal, that means you had to go through some great deal of obstacles to get it. Why do you want to miss your drug effect by being sedated like that? With heroin, it helps me to feel more and I want to be tuned in so I can, you know, work out some stuff or enjoy the moment, whatever it might be, or enjoy my company, whatever the case may be. Um, and so in the movies, when they show the poor person with the needle in their arm or something and they're like nodding, they're missing out on the best effects of heroin. And so um, that looks sexy and uh, that's sensationalistic and that's going to ensure that viewers watch your shit. But it ain't reality, uh, not for the most of us. And so um, it wouldn't be bad if people are doing this and they're getting viewers. The bad part is that we got to pay the price by your drug laws. Your drug laws flow from that sort of misrepresentation. And people like you and me, we pay the price. I mean, the thing, from what I'm getting from you, part of what we want to teach young adults and kids, it is okay to use drugs in moderation, and by moderation, like, not every day, and don't blow it out, don't get blasted, like, if it was alcohol, don't get drunk to where you're throwing up over the toilet isn't fun, but having a couple of glasses of wine where you get a nice buzz that feels, and then you can walk out on your own power. That feels nice. So use a little heroin or a little cocaine so you get a little rush, right? And you can feel it, right? And you can be conscious of, okay, I'm hovering here rather than blow out. You don't want to blow out your consciousness to where you can't pay attention to anything. Absolutely. We can think about uh, young people in college you know, who are uh, below the age of 21. We can see how. When they get an opportunity to drink, some of them just overdo it because they don't know when they're going to get this opportunity again. So you can imagine people using a drug like heroin like that because they don't know when they're going to get this opportunity again because it's illegal and all of this sort of social stigma around it, surrounding it. The same is true like with alcohol. We see this behavior with alcohol and we understand. But when it comes to heroin, we act like we don't understand. Uh, it is logical, reasonable. When you have an, a, a substance that's illegal like this, yeah, you're going to see some behavior that's inappropriate. In, you're going to see some behavior that we don't approve of. That, that's right. Is heroin your personal favorite drug? Uh, it's like asking, uh, is the missionary position your favorite position? You know, it's like, um, uh, it depends on the activity in which I am engaged in. You know, like if I have my wife, my significant other, uh, MDMA might be the choice there or this drug called 6-APB. Uh, but if I'm chilling like with my friends from Paris, you know, uh, the brothers in Paris and what's going on there where in that society they pretend that race doesn't exist and we're having these conversations. And heroin is great for those conversations. Opium is great for those conversations. That's the drug that 
we like to use in that situation. Um, whereas MDMA would be for another situation or whereas cocaine will be for another situation. Uh, so it depends on the situation in, in which I am engaged. I have a, a, a deeply ingrained memory of being with uh, my wife when she was my girlfriend and we got some uh, Molly, right? MDMA. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it was a, we had like the sweetest conversation ever. And it was like the most caring moment ever. And we were like talking about like our grandmothers and like we should go visit them more. And like the depth of the sweetness was almost overpowering, like which I would not be able to access yeah. straight. I'd be like, this is too saccharine. I'm I'm shutting down now. But like with that, and 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 it was it was very it was a very loving moment. It, it really stands out in the memory. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, that you wouldn't be able to access that uh, without the Molly in that moment. And I dig it because um, the same, I'm the same way, particularly in our society. Uh, we as black men have a certain role, a certain place in the consciousness of America. And so you have to make sure that you are ready for whatever those situations uh, that may present themselves. And it might mean that you may be hypervigilant and all the rest of these things. And so one of the things that MDMA, heroin, all of these things help me to do is to recalibrate and help me to understand that you have to be human, regardless of all the shit that they might put on you. You have to be human and you have to take every situation anew. You uh, just because somebody looks like a, what you consider a Trump supporter doesn't mean that that's who they are or that, that's not, that doesn't mean that's the whole of their personality. So you have to take them anew. And my drug use helps me to remember that to help. It helps me to engage each situation and people, each person anew and because precisely that I want to be in that space where you said with Molly uh, and where you are empathetic and you're caring and you're sappy, whatever they call it, but you are a better human as a result. And that's where I want to be. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, 
varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I just had a brother on the show who made a documentary about crack, and one of the points that he was making it was less the usage and more the sellers who helped create that black male sort of cold-hearted, cold-faced sort of thing. Like the sellers were like, any we can't ever show weakness. We can't smile. We can't laugh. We can't dance. You know, we can't like do and show anything because the other killers will think, oh, we're weak and then try to kill us and take our real estate. And that sense of like black man, never smile, never break your, you know, your cool, um, that sort of pervaded throughout the culture in a lot of ways. It definitely came through rappers and into the culture. What do you think about that idea? Was that Stanley the yeah, Nelson yep. film? Stanley Nelson. Yeah, I'm in that. I'm in that film. Yep, you are. Uh, yeah, I think they do a, a bad job. The filmmakers, uh, the the makers of uh, New Jack City, uh, Van Peebles, um, all of those folks, they are the reason that we have this image and not the other way around. Uh, don't get it twisted. Uh, it's those filmmakers that perpetuate this nonsense. Um, uh, you were there in the eighties. Uh, I was there. Um, uh, and when we think about New Jack City and these kinds of things, uh, New Jack City, um, uh, the writer of the original uh, screenplay, um, Tom Wright, not the brother. They brought the brother on after Tom Wright uh, had written New Jack City, which was originally Godfather 3. And then I talk about this in the book. Um, and, and But they weren't going to have uh, like a black star or a black person be featured in Godfather 3. So they uh, sold uh, this script to... Uh, uh, Paramount, I believe, and Quincy Jones got it, and we have New Jack City. Now, what they did, they vilified black youth. Um, the, the writer Michael Cooper or something. Very Michael Cooper. Uh, yeah, they vilified black youth, and it was based on this whole, uh, it was based on a, uh, 
uh, village voice piece uh, of the situation that happened in Detroit. And you read that village voice piece. I mean, it's just filled with sensationalistic garbage. Um, and but it was put off as uh, black youth were somehow different from other youth. Um, uh, in that piece, uh, uh, the original Guardian piece, um, it was. I mean, the, the original Those Village Voice, Voice piece. Um, even LL Cool J was uh, uh, talked about as he was a thug. You know, like uh, milk toast LL Cool J talked about in these terms. Um, um, and so it's the filmmakers and the writers who perpetuate this nonsense. Black men, black boys, whatever. Uh, yeah, they have a range of emotions. It's just that these folks uh, decided to focus in on that emotion. Uh, and that's just uh, and, and that's the image that has been uh, that has gone forward in our society. So I blame the filmmakers. Uh, this this is not on those youth. I mean, those youth were just at, out there uh, talking shit like they always. But that's the shit that you decide to focus on. Mm. And that's the problem. Um, how do I we- was a part of that generation. I, I want to talk about that, but before we get there, how do we normalize drug use in our society the same way it's totally polite and normal to drink wine or whiskey or what have you, you know, in front of your grandmother and mixed company by yourself, what have you. Um, but using drugs is like, oh my God, you know, you're going to smoke a joint. Oh my God. Like, that's a big deal societally, you know, forget you know, use heroin. You can't, you don't, you don't normally say like, yeah, I, you know, I go home and sniff a line of cocaine. It's not a big deal. Like I, I just one, I'm under yeah. control. Like what? You're out of control. Heroin, yeah. Yeah. what have you. How do we get to normalizing these things? So it's like, yeah, you know, I, I drink wine. I sniff a little cocaine. It's, I'm, it's fine. It's cool. Yeah, um, think about how we started this interview. Uh, you, your first question, you asked about heroin, and then we just went, we exploded. It was no big deal. That's how you do it. Uh, uh, middle, middle, uh, middle class folks, people who are from the privileged class, all of these closeted drug drug users who are responsible, who are handling their responsibility, who are happy, who who treat people well, they need to get out of the closet. That's how we change it, and we uh, that will help to uh, lessen the stigma. That will help less like uh, make us less likely to pigeonhole drug users as these irresponsible degenerates, um, uh, which is inconsistent with the evidence and the truth. And so we change it uh, by privileged class people getting out of the closet and having this honest adult conversation. We change it by um, when we see people like Stephen Colbert or Seth Meyers, who I, I love that what they do, but when they're on TV making these inane adolescent jokes about drug users, we call them out and we say, what the fuck is that? You know, that that's not reality. That's just some cheap joke um, that doesn't comport with reality. But that's how we change it. Because I feel like that is an important step toward legalization. To talk about marijuana should be legal, that's not, that's no longer a radical statement. But even five years ago, that would have been a radical statement. But to say all drugs should be legal... You should be able to put whatever you want in your body. 
that's a very radical statement and people would freak out and it would almost disqualify you from the political sort of intellectual conversation. But I'm like, wh why is that not an idea that a reasonable intellectual person could hold? It's a radical idea for those who don't understand the founding principles of the country, uh, which guarantees us all life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So long as we don't disrupt other people's ability to do the same, right? Now, that means that you can live your life however you choose. If you really understood what the Declaration guaranteed, if you really understood that the Declaration said that governments should be created to secure these rights, and when governments fail in securing these rights, governments should be disbanded. So those folks don't understand what it means to be American, and we have to remind them what it means to be American. And they, they will understand that this ain't radical. Just... This is just allowing people the liberty that we say we get, that we say they are entitled to. This is just uh, allowing people to pursue happiness as they see fit. That's all it is. And so uh, the government has a role there. The government's role is to ensure quality control to maybe. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrivemarket.com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Put some uh, requirements on uh, whether people can obtain these substances, use it. So, like, you might have to be a certain age. You might have to pass a competency exam. You may have to do have uh, pass some requirements, but these things are available and they, are, they have a certain level of quality control. That's the government's role. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Toure. Be sure to check out Democracy-ish, where we channeled the frustration, rage, and absurdity that was the 2020 election, as well as discuss the current state of the political climate and our country from a Black perspective. New episodes available every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you stream your podcasts. I have long felt 
and I, I know you agree, that the war on drugs has been far more damaging to America and to black America in particular than drugs themselves have been. Yes. So the war on drugs, we have to understand, is a jobs program. And so the the goal was never uh, to rid the community of drugs. The goal was to kind of divert attention away from the fact that the Rust Belt had lost all those factories to other countries because there was cheaper labor and those middle class jobs were gone. The war on drugs uh, function as a nice substitute for some uh, to where jobs could be obtained in law enforcement. Prisons could be built. The hotels and restaurants surrounding the prisons could uh, also thrive. Um, um, drug uh, testing, where urine testing centers uh, could now uh, make money. All of these people made a lot of money and are making money. People who are in drug treatment, they are. some of them are getting over because we know that Drug addiction has almost nothing to do with drugs. Uh, if we wanted to make sure people were treated with drug addiction, we would make sure they have health care, make sure they had gainful employment, all of these things we know. So on the one hand, there's a wink and nod. People know, at least adults know, that the war on drugs has nothing to do with drugs. It's about jobs. We know that, right? And so, but uh, they tell the public, the naive public, most people know that that's nonsense, and that's not the goal. Um, and so that's when we face that, and then we face the fact that uh, this jobs program is predicated largely on the incarceration of black and brown bodies. The evidence showed this. Black men make up 6% of the general population, but damn near 40% of the incarcerated population. That is outrageous. 6% of the population, 40% of the incarcerated population. And largely because of this war on drugs. Right. And we know it, but it still happens. And the real trick is that we got Black America to buy into this jobs program. That's the real trick. You know, back in the 1980s, the, uh, the mid-1980s, the uh, Black Congressional Congress uh, caucus um, 80, 90 percent of those guys voted for these laws that uh, were more restrictive and uh, the consequence of these laws were uh, more incarcerated black and brown bodies. That's the real trick. I mean, it's like, wow, how do you convince people to participate in their own subjugation? I mean, that's the trick. That's what that's the real trick. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I think a lot of folks may not realize there's a lot of towns in the in the Midwest, in the further west, where the main industry in the town is the prison, right? And the prison yes. funds all, like you outlined, all the activity around there. Even if you're not working in the prison, you might be servicing the prison with linens, with food, what have you. Um, servicing the people who need to come to the prison. So, you know, yeah, it's a, it is a, it is interesting. You, I mean, and not just as a jobs program, but we can seize all kinds of money from, not even if you are convicted, if you are just suspected of having sold drugs on X property, we can seize that property prior to trial. So, yes. right, right, when they're showing like, Look all these drugs. Look at all this money we stole. 
they just keep all that money. They yes. just keep yes. that yacht. And, they, you know, they'll they'll auction it off at some point. And then, so they, I mean, like, so we could just go into the community and just take stuff from yes. various citizens. Like, yes, this is great for government. But it's not, yes. it's not making any difference. The amount of drugs that is in the country is not less. The price of drugs that is in the country is not less. So the war on drugs has been a complete failure from a preventing drug standpoint. Yes, that, that, that was never the goal. That was the sort of stated goal, wink and nod to people who weren't paying attention. And when we say government benefits, let's be clear, it ain't the federal government per se. It's these local governments that have the sheriffs, like Louisiana, they're sheriffs in that, that state. They're, make, they're getting over. I mean, they have like one of the highest incarceration rates in the country and black bodies are behind bars and the local sheriffs are benefiting. Um, upstate New York, throughout this state, um, um, the main industry in many of these towns is the prison industry. Uh, so you, we don't have to go far. Uh, wherever people are at, check out their local prison population, um, and then then you will see the oppressed people of that society. I mean, the the entire history of drug prohibition has been based around racism, from an assault on uh, jazz musicians to hippies to uh, you know the the welfare queen, crack baby, Len bias sort of people in the eighties. It's always been based around policing us, even though you and I know it is quite easy to go on to any college campus, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, whatever, and score whatever it is that you want to do. But you'll you almost never see police raids on major colleges. But the the hood is like a it operates like a prison that we haven't arrested you yet. Yes. Um, because uh, the black community, uh, and I use that term very generally, has been okay with the police raiding that community. Um, in fact, uh, we've had people who have invited the police in the community, yes. Um, and then the politicians would say, well, black people ask for this. And it's like, well, black people ask for jobs. They ask for better education, all of these things. But this is what you give them. They were also uh, sold a lie that drug use in your community is out of control. And it is the reason absolutely. for violence and other problems. Uh, yes. So you need to be part of helping us help you. Yes. Um, and politicians will say, you said that to us. And it's like this story that it, it feeds in this sort of loop Um you say it, and then they say it, and then it becomes reality. When in fact, um, the problems were there long before crack cocaine. Uh, that's a that's just one example. So, like, the peak unemployment rates in the United States occurred in 1982. Yet, crack was blamed for unemployment, even though crack didn't show up on the scene till about 1985. Crack was blamed for all of these things. Well, uh, I, I mean, one of the key lies of the whole situation is the the myth of the gateway drug, which is like you referenced before that drugs are so powerful that almost anybody 
If you smoke a little marijuana, you'll want more. That will make you want other drugs, and your life will soon be ruined by addiction to cocaine or heroin or something much harder. So we must prevent you from acquiring any drugs at all. You're a scientist. That whole math is totally incorrect. Yeah, so the gateway idea theory uh, confuses causation with correlation. So causation it happens when something causes it's an event, like I move my hand and uh, uh, my force causes my hand to move. That's causation. A correlation is something like uh, when it rains, we have uh, more umbrellas that are up in the air. Now, somebody from outer space will come and see like all of these umbrellas and they notice that when it rains, there are more there are more umbrellas up in the air. And now somebody who's not so smart might confuse it and say, oh, the rain is causing uh, I mean, the umbrellas are causing the rain, you know, and so uh, that's confusing causation with correlation. And that's what the gateway theory does. And I'll tell you how. Uh, it basically says that when you use marijuana, then you will use heroin, the harder drugs like heroin or cocaine. Now, it is true that uh, many of the people who use heroin use marijuana before using heroin. But it's also true that the vast majority of users of marijuana never go on to use heroin. Right. Uh, and it's also true, too, that many people who use uh, uh, heroin, use milk before, or drank milk before <laughs> using heroin as a younger person. But no one would say that milk causes you to use heroin. It's also true that uh, the prior three president, not, not including uh, Trump, he hasn't admitted this, but uh, three of the four last presidents all smoked marijuana. Right. Now, we could say that marijuana leads to the White House. Marijuana <laughs> use leads to the White House. That would be illogical, and that's time. wrong. Yeah, that would be wrong, right? Um, I also, I think, I've long thought that it, the notion that we should prevent everyone from getting drugs leads to the notion of prohibition, but they know the demand will never stop. So we have a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States that is not controlled or regulated by the United States, is completely controlled by homicidal people who live in another country, be it Colombia or Mexico or what have you. That, just on a global scale, makes no sense. There is no other multi-billion dollar industry that touches almost every aspect of society that the American government is like, we have no control over that. That's a great point. Uh, I hadn't, I've never put it like that. That's exactly right. It's this multi-billion dollar industry that's, um, that our government has no role in besides making it better. Our government has a role in um, sharpening the, the organizations who are involved. Because if you're going to stay in uh, a, a business where that is uh, restricted so much so, 
where the U.S. government will put all these resources in stopping it, you have to be really good to survive. You have to be really vertically organized and you have to be ruthless to survive. So our government is putting this sort of evolutionary pressure on it such that um, these organizations get better, more efficient. Um, so that's the role our government is playing, but we're not making any money, the American citizens, what we're doing is just that we are spending money on making these folks better. You know, a lot of people talk about the crack era, and it was huge from 1984 to around 1992. And they want to talk about what happened in the crack era, but I've tried to do some reading on why it stopped. And there doesn't seem to be, a like criminologists, sociologists don't have a clear understanding of, like in 92, around 1992, crack use kind of drops off of a cliff. And just society in general seems to say like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. And we haven't really seen that in society of like a drug, like shooting to popularity and then falling off in popularity. What is your theory as to why in the early 90s, most Americans were like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. Okay, so let's be clear. Like, crack shows up in the national conscious in December 1984. The L.A. Times report the first article on crack. New York Times a year later would do the same. So it really didn't come into the American psyche until 1986, really. Uh, and when it came into the, it came in through the American psyche in full force in the summer of 1986. Lynn Bias dies a week later. John Don Rogers, uh, the Cleveland Browns cornerback, he dies. People initially said that they died of a crack-related death. Neither one of them had smoked crack. Crack wasn't involved, but the story had already left the gates, and so America believed that crack was involved. Uh, Congress passed a law in September 1986 punishing crack cocaine violations 100 times more harshly than powder cocaine violations, meaning that you just need a small amount of crack to trigger a mandatory minimum prison sentence of five years. To trigger the same sentence for powder cocaine, you need to have 100 times as much powder cocaine. Uh, now, October 1986, Ronald Reagan uh, signs a proclamation declaring October 1986 Crack Cocaine Awareness Month. Uh, so all of that is happening from the summer to October 1986. December 1986, James Baldwin gives a talk uh, for, for the National Press Club saying that this is crazy. Uh, and he's imploring the black politician to uh, legalize drugs because he says this law could, in operation, can only hurt poor black and brown people. That's what James Ball was said. 1986. Fast forward more than 30 years later, he was absolutely right. Absolutely. Now you you talked about uh, crack use going going up and then coming off. Crack use was always extremely low. Very few people used crack. But the optics of black young men on the corner saying they're selling crack was just too much for the American mainstream. It was just too beautiful. And then the brother who wrote the Guardian piece, I mean, the uh, Village, Voice. Village Voice piece, um, that uh, would combine with New Jack City, all of these kind of imagery, it was great. 
it was an easy way to vilify black men uh, by mainstream because they could they the handcuffs was off were off because they're saying you did this. It was you. We're just following your lead. The handcuffs are off. They threw my generation. That's I was a part of this generation. Uh, I come home. I was in the Air Force at the time, and my friends they would say. Uh, they were on the corner slinging or selling crack. All of them were telling me how much loot they were making. Yet they were at home living with their mom, no car, all of this stuff. So it just conflicted with reality. And then when the studies were finally done, what we determined was that these cats were making about as much as they would have been making uh, in a McDonald's suit. They were making about the same amount as fast food restaurant. So this is a myth about the the savageness of these guys, the amount of money they were making, all of this is just myth. And how widespread crack use was, it's a myth. Uh, white people always use crack cocaine more than black people. Um, so all of this just conflicts with the reality. And like you said, what happened? Crack didn't go anywhere. The same numbers of people still use crack. They still smoke cocaine. But it's always been a relatively low number. In part because when you smoke cocaine, the effects are so rapid, so immediately, so immediate. Why, why do you want to blow your high that quickly? And also, uh, you also run the risk of uh, burning away some of the, the, the cocaine. It's like, it, you might as well take it orally. The effects are felt in uh, a quick enough time. It's quickly, fairly quickly, and they last longer. And so, like, why do you want to waste your money like that? For more fascinating conversations about drugs from me and Dr. Hart, join us right now at patreon.com slash show. The rest of the show is more mind-blowing conversation that will make you feel like, hey, it's fine to do drugs sometimes. Thanks so much to Dr. Hart for a fantastic interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt. Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Keena Murphy, and Earl Dorsey. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.